and we'll get into our message for this morning. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 22. For some of you, a familiar story. If you grew up in the church, grew up in Sunday school, then you'll know this story as the story of the rich young ruler, as he was traditionally called. Uh, for, perhaps for some of you, this will be a new story. I'm going to suggest that for all of us, it's a rather shocking one, and one that I want to spend a bit of time on as we begin to deal with this topic of giving. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and scoffed. No, that's not what it says. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This is a story that for me as a young believer, as a young man, I didn't enjoy reading. Couldn't understand what it could possibly mean and wondered, was I expected, as Jesus required of this man, to give up everything I owned, literally to sell everything, to give everything I had away. Not, not, not set it aside and recoup the cost later, but give everything away in order to follow Jesus. Now, we can dismiss this story and say, oh, this is one of those extreme stories of Jesus, or this is, this is hyperbole, but we have to remember that, and we've talked about this uh, for the last year or more, that to be a follower of Jesus is just that, to be a Christian, to be born again, is to follow Christ. And we cannot possibly ignore the words of Jesus if we are a Christian, if we're born again. In fact, the Bible teaches us that the church, this entity that we're participating in today, this living organism made up of all true believers is built on the foundation of Christ. When he sent his disciples out to make disciples, he said, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. We cannot dismiss the words of Jesus when it comes to following him. And so we ask this morning, what do these words possibly mean? What do they mean for us? I want to show you some details that are easily missed in this story that can help us to uh, discern the meaning here. Let's look between the lines a little bit. Let's, let's look a little deeper here and see what's actually going on. Number one, the first detail I want you to see here is that this man assumed and intended that he could earn some, somehow, he could earn 
eternal life. It's so clear there in verse 17 in his statement to Jesus, what must I do? He didn't come to Jesus seeking something that he knew he couldn't find or produce on his own. He came to Jesus assuming that he could earn or produce or do something in order to achieve eternal life, or you could say in order to achieve a right standing with God. You will notice that Jesus played right along with this assumption, didn't he? Because the first thing he began to ask the man is about his behavior. Have you kept the commandments? Do you see what Jesus was doing here? He was playing along with a false assumption that this man had, that he could somehow do something to eternal life. And the reason Jesus does that is so that in the, in the outcome of the man's answer, we see this. He assumed that he was worthy of it. Imagine having Jesus, the Messiah, the one who can see deep into our souls, knows everything we've ever done, and he begins to rhyme off various commandments, and we look him straight in the eye, and with a straight face, we say, I've kept them all. Now, as I said here, I might have scoffed if I was Jesus. I might have I might have laughed out loud. The response of the Lord here was a response of love. This man intended to earn eternal life. He assumed that he was worthy of it. He thought he'd kept all the commands. He thought he already was righteous. And in spite of his self-righteousness and hypocrisy, Jesus loved him. I think this is important. This is the only gospel that of multiple gospels that tell this same story. It's the only gospel that give us this detail that Jesus loved the man. And I love it because everything that Jesus is about to say to him flows out of a heart of love and compassion and concern for the man. And what did Jesus say, having, Mark, having declared his love for the man, go sell one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. I think what we tend to do here is we fixate on this, what seems so outrageous, this instruction Jesus gives to sell everything, give it, give it all away to the poor. And what we miss is that Jesus, in his love for the man, is actually offering, he's actually holding out to this man some tremendous blessings and opportunities. Notice, verse 21, Jesus is offering this man true treasure. Jesus, who can see a man who's, yes, wealthy in terms of the things of the world, but Jesus, knowing and seeing beyond that, realizes that there's actually a far greater treasure, a treasure that makes being rich in this world seem like poverty, and it's the treasure of heaven, the treasure of eternity. And so what Jesus offers this man, because he loves him and has compassion for him, he says, I actually have something better for you. You could be far richer than you are right now. If only you could see and believe that there is another kind of treasure in another kingdom where you could have true wealth attributed to you. He offers him true treasure. Then notice Jesus goes on. After offering him this treasure in heaven, he says these wonderful words. Do you see it there? 
discipleship. Jesus says, come follow me. I mean, how many people got to hear Jesus say those words? We, we attribute those words to ourselves through the gospel. We understand that Jesus is calling all of us to follow him. But the reality is here, Jesus invited this man into discipleship. And though he may not have been one of the 12, the 12 had already been chosen, I wonder what could have been written about this nameless man. We never get his name, but what might have been said about him if he would have taken up Jesus on this offer, if he would have said, I would love to be your disciple. He comes to him seeing him and saying that you're, you're a good teacher, not good enough to follow, not for this man. What could have been true of this man's life if he would have surrendered his life to Jesus? Could we have heard his name in the book of Acts describing his efforts to spread the kingdom of God in the early days of the church? I believe we could have. That's what Jesus was offering him. But in turn, the man walks away. The implication of this story is clearly that the man didn't find what he was looking for though it was offered to him. And I say this, his sadness spoke volumes. What does the sadness of this man mean? Well, there's a number of things it means. We're going to talk about these. Clearly, he didn't like the Lord's answer. He wasn't willing to give up what he had in order to gain what he did not have. And he wasn't even willing to pursue eternal life if it meant that he had to give away his wealth. His sadness spoke volumes. So what's going on here? I want to point this out to you. And so ask the question this way. Why, why did Jesus ask this of this man? Many have pointed out that later in the Lord's ministry, we read in the Gospel of Luke about a guy named Zacchaeus, who'd been a tax collector, who also was wealthy. And upon meeting Jesus... He declares, here and now, I give half of all that I have to the poor. Now, Jesus didn't turn to Zacchaeus and say, oh, sorry, Zacchaeus, that's good, but it's not good enough. You actually have to give 100% of all that you have. Jesus didn't say that. In fact, he declared that salvation had come to Zacchaeus' house, meaning that he perceived in Zacchaeus saying, I'm going to give half of all that I have to the poor. Jesus said, this man's heart has been changed. This man has come to faith in God. Now, there's a sense in which Jesus never made this specific request to any uh, one person, although in a sense, as we're going to see this morning, he makes this demand upon all of us who would aspire to be his disciple because he said in Luke's gospel, unless you give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. So we've got to wrestle with this. This is what I believe is at the heart of this story. The issue of this story is not generosity. We're not trying to discern here what percentage of our wealth or of our money or of our earnings should we give. Should we follow the Old Testament pattern of 10%? Well, actually, if you look closely at the Old Testament, there were multiple tithes. So it wasn't just 10%. It was actually more than that. The issue wasn't generosity. It wasn't how much. It wasn't what percentage. The issue for this man 
was an issue of idolatry. In other words, this man wasn't just a rich man, he was a rich man who worshiped his wealth. And this is where I want us to begin this message on giving, is to begin to wrestle with what is, I believe, at the very heart of this story, and it's the question of idolatry, not generosity, we'll get to that, but first, the question of idolatry. I love this three-part idolatry test, and we'll start by applying it to the rich young man. It hurts, hurts a little bit to apply it to ourselves, but hopefully we can get to that point. Let's begin by applying this test to the rich young man of Mark chapter 10. The first test is the worship test. The word worship is tied to the word and the concept of worth. That's why in the Bible we often see the word worship, but we also often see the word worthy. In fact, in the, in the worship of heaven described in the book of Revelation, we find the angels and the people of God declaring Jesus is worthy. You see, that's a worship word. Worship is tied to value or worth. Remember it by thinking of it as the word worthship. We're always worshiping what we value. And so it's so clear in the story of this rich young man in Mark chapter 10 that Jesus holds out to him an opportunity for something different. You've got the world's riches, but you could have eternal riches. You've got the world's riches, but you could actually have me. You could be in a relationship with me. You could be part of my kingdom. You could be part of my mission. And when the, when the man walked away sad, he clearly was flunking the worship test. And what he was showing was that his heart most valued, not Jesus, not God's kingdom, not eternal treasure, not even salvation, what he valued the most was the thing that he could not give up, and that was his wealth. And so, turn the question to yourself, look in the mirror of the worship test, and ask yourself this question, what do I value most? I try to think about what it would be like for me if I stood before Jesus and he laid out this same test for me. And I heard him say to me, give up everything you have and come follow me. If I knew that my salvation was dependent on this, and it's not, it's not that our salvation is granted based on our giving, but if I knew that I could only have Jesus by giving up everything I have in this world, would I do so? And I hope as we sit here this morning and wrestle with that question, I hope that we can answer the question, yes. Now, let me say this. I'm somewhat disturbed that the rich young man simply walked away sad. He didn't even appeal. He didn't stop to argue. He didn't turn to Jesus and say, that's hard. I think I want to do this, but this is really hard. Do you have anything that you could help me? It's like a story where Jesus told a man whose son was possessed by a demon and, and very unwell, and he said to that man, anything is possible for the one who believes. Do you remember what that man said to Jesus? Lord, I believe. Help 
my unbelief. You hear in that response a man who's saying yes to Jesus, but hearing in his own soul uh, a loud no, meaning that his will is yes, Jesus, but he senses in his own sinfulness and humanness and brokenness a loud no. And that man actually brought that no to Jesus and said, would you help my unbelief? The best part of that story is that the man's son was healed. Jesus said, if you have, nothing is impossible if you believe. The man says, I choose belief, but my belief is so weak. But it was enough for Jesus to respond. See, this man could have done something like that. He could have said yes to Jesus, help my, help my covetousness, help me with my greed. Do you know that that's what we do in salvation? I mean, this story is a story that, that should remind us of how needy we are for salvation. Because if you're anything like me, I, I, I say yes to Jesus, but I come to him with my broken and sinful heart that's greedy, that doesn't want to let go, and I bring that to the very one, the only one, who can actually cure and transform that heart through salvation, through the gospel. So we ask ourselves about this worship test. If we find that we're failing the worship test, the good news is that there is a savior here who has come to transform us, to save us from that greed and covetousness and to change us into his generous heart. So if you find that you're failing the test, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. It means that you need Christ. We all need Christ. The second test is the security test. We can't see into the rich man's heart as to why he walked away, but I suspect that the issue of security was a big reason why he walked away. Because for him, security in life, what he had to fall back on, for him wasn't Jesus, it wasn't God, it wasn't faith, it was his money. It was his riches that made him sleep well at night. And if difficult times came or there was a famine in the land, he felt secure because he had so much money to fall back on. This is the second test, the security test. What makes me secure in life? Where do I place my trust? Or say it this way, in what do I depend? Because saving faith in Jesus Christ is essentially dependence. We do not live in a declaration of independence as believers. We actually live the opposite. We live in a declaration of dependence, where we depend upon Christ alone for salvation, and we're actually dependent upon him for all of our needs. So the security test asks me the question, where do I place my trust? Clearly the rich man was not willing to let go of the false sense of security that he had in his wealth. The reality was that worldly wealth isn't as secure as we might think it is. But if we're trusting in Christ, if our security is in Christ, then it is absolutely sure. So I ask you, what makes you secure? This is one of the reasons why we neglect to give 
because we're trusting in our resources and we feel we have to have so much to fall back on and we won't give of the surplus because we want to be secure with our funds. And I would argue that the Bible teaches us to give till it hurts. By giving till it hurts, we maintain a lifestyle in which we are dependent upon God. The security test. One more test of idolatry, and it's the identity test. What defines who I truly am? For the rich man, clearly it was his wealth. He got up in the morning, he thought about who he was. He was a wealthy man. He probably wore clothes that made it clear to everyone around him that he was a wealthy man. That was his identity. That's what gave him his sense of self. But when we come to Christ, in fact, I would say so much of the New Testament is meant to help us redefine who we are, that we no longer are who we used to be. Our identity is not bound up in our money or our job, our success, or our failures. Our identity is not bound up in what my parents or some teacher said about me. My identity is bound to Jesus. And I am a Christian because of him. I follow him. My identity is tied completely to Jesus Christ. I'm complete in him. How about for you? What gives you identity? There's many things that give us identity. Sometimes it's our possessions, the vehicle we drive, the house we live in, the business that we run. There's many things that can give us identity. The things that I do, the things that I do well, the friends that I have. But it's all idols. Our identity should only come from Jesus and only Jesus. This is the idolatry test that I find really helpful. Jesus, of course, taught many times in his ministry about money. Some have said that Jesus spoke more about hell and money than anything else. He talked a lot about money. He said lots of very challenging things. Here's the verse I mentioned earlier, Luke 14. You, you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. That's what Jesus said. That's what he taught. And to be his disciple is to, to be taught everything that he taught his original disciples and to believe it. Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That is the clear teaching of Jesus. Then we have the Apostle Paul chiming in. And I like these verses. Notice these verses spoken to believers. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and... Oh, man, I always found this verse challenging. And greed, which is idolatry. Now, what I love about this verse... Jesus, of course, gave it, gave it to us in the absolute. You can't serve God and money. Unless you give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. And I would say to follow Jesus requires that in our hearts we say yes to that. What we find here is, is Paul acknowledging that even as we say yes to that, that we find within us a battle, don't we? There is a human nature within us that does not want to let go of the things of the world and the sinful things of life listed here in this verse, one of which is greed. 
So here Paul is acknowledging to us the reality of these things. He, he does this, of course, even in Romans chapter 7, where he talks about what a wretched man I am, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. The things I shouldn't do, I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He declares there in Romans 7, Jesus will. But he acknowledged that there was a battle going on within him, and he's acknowledging it here. And what is the answer to the battle? He says to us, as followers of Jesus, that we put these things to death. So here we are living in an affluent society and culture. We are an affluent church by any standard. We live quite comfortably, most of us. How is it that we put this, and we'll focus specifically on greed, on our love of money, on our desire for things, how do we wage this war and put this to death? Have you ever thought about that? My question for you, if to whatever degree our affluent culture around us is, is a struggle and a battle for you, to whatever degree you worry about money and want more and want bigger and better things, how is it that we wage this war? How do we put greed to death? Have you ever thought about that? You're saying, well, aren't you going to tell us? I think there's a lot of ways that we battle these things. I think the word of God helps us battle greed by reminding us what true wealth, what true worth, what true riches is. So we immerse our mind in God's word every day to remind ourselves that everything that's around us is not true riches. God has promised us true riches. We focus on the gospel and we think about Jesus. In fact, Paul gives us a, a tremendous verse uh, in, in Corinthians where he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The gospel itself becomes a weapon of war against greed as we think about Jesus and all that he gave up so that he could rescue us and save us. That is a weapon of war. Fasting is a weapon of war against greed. Now we, we generally think about fasting and refraining from eating food. I would argue there's many ways that we can fast. Is there something in your life that has a hold of your heart and you know, even as we're sitting here, the, Lord, the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on that thing. That thing that you've been saving for, that thing that you just gotta have, you wanna have, that thing that you already have, but it's costing you so much money and it's making it difficult to be generous. And God's putting his finger on that. Well, the obvious application of all of these verses is that there are times when we give things up. If Jesus said you've got to give, get rid of everything, give up everything you have to be his disciple, well, there will certainly be times when we have to give up something that is hindering our walk with him. Hebrews says it this way, that we should set aside every sin and the, and the weight that so easily besets us. There are things in our lives, things that pertain to wealth and possessions that actually hinder our relationship with God and the right thing to do as some have said, is to lay it on the altar. Get rid of it. Sell it. So that you have more room in your heart, more room in your life, more room in your wallet to serve God. Hebrews 13 
The writer of Hebrews says, keep your lives free from the love of money. See what, he, see what he's saying there? He's acknowledging the reality of the battle and he's saying to us by command, do what it takes to keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, what a powerful verse, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Do you see how these things pertain to idolatry? If we don't keep our lives free from the love of money, if we're not content with what we have, we are idol worshipers. And we are not content to have God as our Savior, as our Father. It's not enough to hear him say, I will never leave you. We want more. And in fact, we're committing the exact sin that Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden. When Satan said to them, you will not surely die, but if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And all the blessings that God had given them weren't enough. May it never be true of us. It's the idolatry test. So let's think about generosity and how generosity is our battle plan against this reality of idolatry in our lives. So first of all, this one. Generosity and this issue of giving and sharing what I have is a test of my love. I could have said here, it's a test of my worship. But the way that I use my money tests my love. Number one, do I love God? Number two, do I have compassion on the, the needy of this world? The people who've never heard about Jesus, who need someone to go and someone to support the one who goes to take the gospel to parts of the world where they've never heard. Do I have compassion for those people? Generosity is a very simple test of my love for God and for those who are in need. Number two, generosity, I love this word, it's my tactic to fight idolatry. You see this? So if, if you're a giving person or if you're not a giving person, number one, it's a test of what I really love. And by the way, sometimes the answer to the test is I love myself. I want what I want. But secondly, generosity is a, it's actually a tactic to fight against this. And I love it when the Bible says, sell that and give it away. Don't sell it, put it in the bank so that someday, you know, make a little interest on it and then buy something else later. Sell it and give it away. Give away the opportunity to rest on that thing, to hope in the value of that thing for some future time. Give it away. Generosity helps me fight against idolatry and my love of self and my love of stuff. It's not just the practical aspect, although we're about to see that there's a practical aspect to generosity. I would say the bigger issue of giving isn't just the practical value that it brings to the things that we give to. It's the way that it wages war in my heart against greed and selfishness. That's why we need to be generous. But of course, as I just said, generosity is my tool for ministry. It's a test of my love. It's a tactic to fight idolatry. It's a tool for ministry. So we're going to finish by thinking about how generosity, how our giving is a tool for ministry. Before I do that, I do want to just acknowledge, and Neil mentioned this in his presentation, that we're not all in the same place financially. And uh, I'm not going to mention, I'm not going to talk about tithing or percentages here today, I, I realize that we have particularly younger families who no doubt are feeling the pinch of inflation. 
of the cost of housing. And I suspect that there, we have families among us who literally are struggling to just pay the bills, never mind having much left over to give. So I, would, I just want to acknowledge that. Um, I, I hope if you're in that place, there's someone that you can talk to about that. And I would hope that as a church, as the Lord would lead us, that we are willing to come alongside people who are in need and who are struggling to help them. That's what we see in the early church. I'll show you a verse in a moment about how they shared and those who had wealth shared with those who were in need. They, they lived in a time when there were slaves and masters in the same church and they sought equality. They sought to manage and help one another financially. So let me just, let me just acknowledge that. I don't want anyone feeling a heavy burden here today, but I would say that anyone of us can probably, probably find a way to give something to the Lord, uh, particularly if we're willing to give up something, which could be Tim Horton's coffee or something like that, that I don't necessarily have to have. I could give that small thing up so that I could give something small and have the blessing of participating in gospel ministry. The Bible would suggest, I think, three areas of ministry where we ought to give, three directions for our money where we should be considering how can I give to the Lord and to his work. Here's the first one. The first one is gospel ministry. Don't you think it's cool to be in a church where 32% of everything we give is gonna go to the mission field or to some gospel ministry? Does the Bible teach the importance of this? Of course it does. Here's perhaps an obscure way in which the Bible teaches this. Jesus here saying, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Let me translate that for you. I think what he's saying here is use worldly wealth to, to gain friends in heaven. People who wouldn't have been there had it not been for your use of money and your investment in gospel ministry. Imagine getting to heaven and meeting people who came to faith in Christ because of the giving you did. Imagine that. How that would raise the joy, the wonder, the excitement of heaven. A man named Ray Bolt sang a song about this back in the 90s. But uh, thank you for giving to the Lord. And the story of, of the person who gets to heaven and reminds and is, is met, met, met by, by another person who says, a missionary came to your church and you gave and that's why I'm here. That's, I think what Jesus is talking about in this somewhat strange parable, I'm not gonna take time to unpack that, but it's this lesson, it's this message that we should use worldly wealth for eternal purposes, particularly for winning friends in eternity. And then this, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul saying, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. If we want to send people out, and we have sent people out, and we want them to take the gospel, especially to parts of the world where it is not known, we need to stand behind that financially. Gospel ministry. Here's the second one. Second category of our giving is compassionate ministry. <clears throat> and there are numerous scriptures. Old Testament is filled with scriptures, laws that the Jewish people had to follow about not harvesting 
the edges of their field and don't go over your vineyards a second time and so that the poor of the land can come and, and glean and harvest and have something. There's so many ways that the Old Testament commanded care for the poor. So many times the scripture shows this principle and here's one in Galatians 2. Here's Paul and Peter talking about their missionary work and their gospel ministry and, and coming up with this uh, tactic, I, I will say, for their ministry. They asked that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. We might have read the book of Acts and assumed that Paul's great desire was simply to preach the gospel. Who cares if they're poor or rich? But what we find in the New Testament by practice and by word is that as they were preaching the gospel, they were seeking to care for poor people. In fact, when John the Baptist sent people to Jesus to say, hey, are you really the Messiah? Jesus quoted from Isaiah an Old Testament prophecy about how the, the Messiah would care for the poor. Do you see that this is actually the signature of God? And it's why we have to bring this kind of ministry into even our preaching of the gospel. This is the signature. How do we know when God is in the building? Because the poor and those in need are cared for. And the compassion of God toward those in need is evident. And so as believers, we have to be compassionate. And we need to give compassionately to those in need. Now, I know that this is trickier in our day. I know that there are government programs that provide for those in need. Uh, I know we have all kinds of reasons why we don't think certain people deserve help. But nevertheless, we have to reckon with the scriptures which over and over call us to care for the poor. Here's Jesus. In Matthew 6, he's going to give us some advice about how we give to the needy. I just want to simply point out to you that his assumption was that you will. Right? He didn't say if you give to the needy. He said when. Because if we follow Jesus and we do it his way, we will. That's why Jesus fed 5,000 and 4,000 and gave that huge catch of fish, no doubt, to those who were in need. And here we see it in the early church, specifically to believers caring for other believers. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. It's compassionate ministry. It's the second direction of our giving. I mentioned this at the end of August, Hope of Bastion, our own missionaries, Raul and Jesenia, who are there in Ecuador and running a school for children who uh, are underprivileged. And they actually have a sponsorship program. Now, praise the Lord, after I mentioned this in August, uh, there were about eight new children who were sponsored, which was enough to pay the salary of one of their teachers in the school. That is awesome but there's still 16 kids that don't have sponsors. We have the resources as a church to cover those children, so I'll say it again. If you're interested in sponsoring a child, you can talk to Rhoda or you can contact Raul and Jesenia yourself and consider getting involved in compassionate ministry in that way. Number three, church ministry. Our generosity needs to be directed in this direction as well. Now in the New Testament, I gotta be honest, this might seem a little self-serving, but the, the clearest explanations we have for giving towards church ministry is towards those who teach the word. That's, that's kind of convenient for me, but nevertheless, it's the case. Let the one who's taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Now, I'm not the only one who teaches here, of course, and uh, we, 
we pay for curriculum and resources to teach your children and your youth, or we pay someone like tonight to come in and speak to our young adults, or we have, we've hired Julissa, who's uh, primarily working and laboring to bring the teaching of God's word to our children through the program that she's running, and Katie, who's working part-time to ensure that our youth are being taught God's word. So I'm not the only person who's teaching God's word by any uh, stretch here at Wallenstein, but it would just make sense that we would all obey the scripture and help in the cost of that. And then in 1 Timothy 5, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. So here's a clear teaching of God. And in our context, we have three full-time elders, myself, Pastor Wayne and, and Andreas, who uh, Pastor Wayne works in care ministry, who, by the way, is also teaching God's word as he ministers to people. And Andreas, who makes so much of what we do here at this church possible, including uh, ministry of God's word and so many other things. And here's the principle of scripture taken from the Old Testament. You don't muzzle the ox. I prefer to think of Andreas as the ox, not me but he shouldn't be muzzled. We're, we're good friends, right? Oh, he says he wants, to clo- he wants to close the service now. No way. Now, in the days of the early church, they didn't have buildings. They didn't have church staff. They had apostles. And as we see here, they had church leaders who took on primary work of teaching and ministering to the church. But here in our day, we we have buildings like this, amazing buildings that allow us to do amazing things for the kingdom of God. And I would argue that in some ways, because of the reality of having buildings and staff and the things that we have as a church, we can actually go back into the Old Testament and see how the people of God were commanded to provide for the tabernacle or the temple, and how the people of God gave so generously so that those buildings, or so that the tent of meeting, and then later the temple could be built, and then to provide for the priests and Levites who served and ministered in the temple. That's where uh, some of the tithes would go, and there were so many ways in which the people of Israel were required to uh, contribute and participate in the cost of the worship and ministry of God, and I just think that's so obvious and applicable to us. So if we come here and we're ministered, uh, whether it's through the preaching of the word, our kids are through Sunday school, our kids go to the youth group, we sit under these lights, we listen through the sound system. I mean, how can we presume upon others to pay all the costs for that when we are receiving the benefit of it? That's just not right. It's not biblical. It's It's not godly. So if you're able these are the three areas that we all, I believe, should be contributing to. Gospel ministry, compassionate ministry, church ministry. One of the most exciting things that I've seen in my life in terms of ministry is when church, the church has come together and generously given of themselves, of their time, and of their money in order to minister either to a needy person within the church or to needs within the broader community. That is what I long to see more and more of in our church here at Wallenstein. 
I do not want us to think that all of our giving needs to be directed to some program that benefits me. I would love for us to recognize the need for us to combine our money to minister to the needs of people in our broader community and around the world. Let's get excited about that. What could God do through our combined giving? Let me finish with this verse. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Again, the words of Jesus, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's listen to the work of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts as we close with one more song and then I will come again and close in prayer. How is the Lord speaking to you? My great concern, I think the concern of Christ and God's word would be idolatry. Not so much what percentage are you giving and are you giving enough, but where is our heart? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So may the Holy Spirit put his finger on our hearts if it's true that we have worshipped false gods. May we come to Christ and repent, turn from that wickedness of worshiping what is not God and what is not Christ. May we rise up and fight, particularly through the gospel. We come to Jesus to save us from ourselves. And may giving be our opportunity, our tactic to fight against idolatry and our tool to minister to the world. God, we thank you so much for your grace and goodness. You are a giving and generous God. Forgive us, Lord, for our selfishness, for the ways that we have sought to keep what we have, thinking that it's our own, spending it selfishly, O oh Lord. Forgive us for this. Help us to fight the greed that we find in our hearts. Help us to fight it through the gospel, through Jesus, who saves us, forgives us, transforms us. I pray that that would be true of us, and even as we continue to find remnants of greed and covetousness, Lord, I pray that we would battle by coming to Jesus again and again, reminding ourselves of his generosity, setting aside his riches to become poor. Lord, put your finger on our lives. Show us how you would have us give and be generous to the ministry of the gospel, to the needy around us, and help us, Lord, to contribute and participate in the work of this church. All of this, Lord, we want to do for your glory so that your kingdom will be known so that people can find Jesus. Would you make this true of us as a church in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. Thank you.